2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This will be the introduction in these four verses. So Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So every book we have a theme. Well, the theme of Second Peter is this. Beware but grow. Beware of false teachers. The whole thing is about false teachers, heretical teaching. But grow. Beware but grow. Now, just a little bit of background. The author is Peter, but that's disputable. If you look in church history for a long time, this book wasn't accepted. It wasn't accepted until 366 A.D. at the Council of Laodicea. But we do think it is Peter who wrote it. The, the dispute seems to be in the literary style. Silas penned the first letter. He was the one that was the, uh, was the scribe that wrote down the words of Peter. The second letter, we don't know who the scribe was. It could have been Peter himself or another person like Silas. So that could have been some of the reasons for the discrepancy. Uh, Peter wrote this probably from Rome and probably while he was in prison. There's, people don't actually know exactly what was going on here, but they know that shortly after this, Peter was martyred. So we believe that he was in a Roman prison, probably the Mamertine prison, the one that Paul was actually killed in. And you have to remember that around 64 A.D., Nero started persecuting the churches. And just a side note, Nero, with all of his viciousness, in 68 A.D., he committed suicide. So all the opulence of Rome, all the power that he had, all the evil that he tried to spew out, he ends up killing himself. That is a life wasted. A life wasted. And it's written to the churches that have been distributed throughout Asia Minor. And it's talking about false teachers and the heresies that go along with the false teaching. So early on, false teaching had infiltrated the church, and they're dealing with the Gnostics. And I don't know if you know what the Gnostics are, but the Gnostics believe that, the, that there was mystical, supernatural information that only a few people had. And we know that God's Word is for all people. But the mystical, the, the Gnostics wanted to have special input. And, oh, if you listen to us, you're going to get this special information. And so the Gnostics, and then they believed in indulging the flesh. Anything you wanted the flesh to do is great. The spirit is what, the spirit is what we really focus on, but since the, the flesh really doesn't matter, I can do whatever I want with the flesh. It ended up in two different things that happened. People will either become brutal with their flesh and cut themselves and, and whip themselves and get their flesh under control, or they just had license to do whatever they wanted with their flesh because the flesh didn't mean anything and the Spirit was everything. Now, what do you think people did the most? Probably did whatever they wanted. A few of them were beating themselves, but mostly, hey, I like that thing, man. I can go do whatever I want and still be in. No, that was a false teaching. Again, Peter is a shepherd. Remember in 1 Peter chapter 5, he's, he describes himself as an elder of the church. He's a shepherd. And what are shepherds to do, the pastor teacher to do? They are to feed the sheep, the true word of God. They are to guide, guard, and protect the sheep from false teaching, and encourage the sheep to go on to maturity. So the purpose of the book is this, to build up the faith and to insulate 
from false doctrine. And it's the same, it was at Peter's time, early on in the church, and it's the same all through the epochs of time up to now. We want to teach the truth of God's word. What do people really need to hear? What do people really need to know? The truth of God's word. Peter's instructing Christians on how to defend themselves from the Gnostics, from the Gnostics. And again, 2 Peter, it's not just 2 Peter that was questionable in the canon of Scripture. It was 2 Peter, Jude, 2 and 3 John. These were called the disputed books, and Hebrews was also in that. So it took a long time for these books to be accepted. And it wasn't until late that they were accepted, but they were accepted as the canon of Scripture. That brings us to something that I want you to think about. Many deny, even in the early days, they denied the authenticity of some of the Scriptures, but many today deny the inspiration of Scripture. Is this truly the Word of God that we have in our hands? And that is the beginning. When someone starts on that road of denying that we have God's Word in our hand, that is the beginning of their apostasy. That is the beginning when people start to slide away from the faith. I've seen it over and over and over. You compromise your view on the Scriptures, and you eventually start compromising your view on everything else in your life. Sixty-six books were written, 40 authors, over 1,500 years with an integrated message from beginning to end that Messiah is coming, that Christ is coming, Jesus is coming, the Savior of the world is coming. The canon of the Scripture. Now, the canon is this. It, means, it just simply means the rule, the norm, or the standard. So what became the canon of Scripture? We call this the canon, the rule, the norm, the standard of what we believe in. 66 books. How did we get these 66 books? Because there's umpteen books that people try to throw in. Why don't we take the book of Asher, or why don't we take the book of Thomas, or why don't we take the book of Mary, or why don't we take the book of this? They didn't meet the qualifications to be in the canon. Now, John, Josh McDowell says this in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Quote, the church did not create the canon. It did not determine which books would be called scripture. Instead, the church discovered which books had been inspired from the inception. And by 300 to 400 AD, all that we see, the 66 books that we see in our Bible today, were accepted as the canon of scripture. They had to meet some criteria to be part of the canon, some criteria. First of all, they had to have a prophetic authorship. Either it had to be an apostle or a prophet or someone closely related to them, like Mark was to Peter and Luke was to Paul. It had to have a witness of the Holy Spirit, that the book was inspired by the Spirit of God. Clark Pinnock says this, it had to appeal to the inner witness of the Holy, of the Holy Spirit, was also made to aid the people in understanding which books belonged in the canon and which books did not. God's people learned to distinguish the wheat from the chaff. Well, that was good, good, Clark. Whoever you are, Clark Pinnock, that sounded good. And then there also had to be acceptance from the people of God. Acceptance from the people of God. And remember, again, the Holy Spirit spoke to the disciples. And there was a scripture in John 14, 26. But the Helper, or the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and to bring remembrance to you everything which I have said to you. So we believe that the Spirit of God spoke to these men and enabled them to write exactly what God wanted. And we think that that's what the canon of Scripture is. So for a book to be canonical, a summary had to be written by a spokesperson for God, confirmed by an act of God, the Holy Spirit witness. It had to tell the truth. It could not contradict another part of Scripture. It had to demonstrate the power of, of God to change lives and had to be accepted by the people of God. Now, that was quick because you're probably never going to remember that. 
But what I do want you to remember is this. There are three places in Scripture that tell us, the Bible tells us, this is the inspired Word of God. The Holy Spirit is speaking to us saying, tell the people this is the inspired Word of God. The first one is in 2 Timothy 3.16. And I would encourage you, if you're going to make a memory verse of anything, make a memory verse of these three, three areas, these three verses. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. Inspiration is theonoptus, and it means breathed by God. The breath of God breathed the Word of God to the people that were penning it. And it's profitable for doctrine, which means teaching, and for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Peter 1.20 says this, Above all, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. By, as they were carried along, the Spirit of God is involved in this. The Spirit of God spoke to Peter, James, John, all the authors of the New Testament to pen exactly what God wanted. And finally, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, Paul says this, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preach is not something made up. I did not receive this from men in order to hear it, but I received it by revelation from God. It was a revelation from God to Paul. And Paul wrote it on paper, and it's come down to us. We have the inspired word of God in our possession. The inspired word, unequivocally. There's been so much work that's, done on that, that's been done on this. Now, often we're asked, how can this Bible really be God-breathed? How can it really be God-breathed? And remember, right from the beginning, the Word of God was challenged. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Satan says to Eve, says to the woman, has God thus said? Has God really said this? Did he really mean this in his Word? And I can say, yes, he did, because look, the fall came, because God means what he says in his word. This is a true word to humanity. In the beginning, folks, in Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth. And when it says God created, that word created is bara in the Hebrew. It means he created out of nothing. In, in the Latin, it is ex nihilo, from nothing came something. God breathed this into existence. Our omnipotent God spoke and Everything came into existence. The macro, we said this so many times, the space. And when you go down to the Creation Museum, and you, if you can stay awake in the planetarium, you might, might have to take some no-dos because you go in there and it's dark, and they lean you back, and I've three times I've fallen asleep, but at least I got the Beetlejuice, okay? <laughs> Beetlejuice, the big planet, okay? The big sun. I make it the Beetlejuice, and I don't make it past that, but anyway, it's, it's a magnificent... <laughs> Uh, display of the creation and the vastness of the creation. And it's incredible what God has created. A God that can just bear out of nothing, create all of that, all the way down to all the forms of life, all the way down to the micro-creation inside of you, your DNA, your cells, the organelles in your cells, the ribosomes, the, the, the RNA, just everything. That is an incredible God. Now, think about this. If a God 
that is that big that can do the vastness of everything that you see and speak it into existence, is it hard to think that he could get a reliable word to his people? That is child's play, but that is what stumbles people all the time. It is impossible for me to believe. Our God is a great God. He is a big God, and he can get a reliable word to his people, and he has. And he has. And Second Peter is the word of God. Second Peter will teach us how to deal with false doctrine. And, it's, and again, nothing new. Deception has been in this thing from the beginning. John dealt with it. Peter dealt with it. Jude dealt with it. Paul dealt with it. False doctrine. It, the world is, is just replete with false doctrine and deception, half-truths, a world system that is sprinting and running away from God, and the church is involved in it too, the global church. If you look at England, I just saw a statistic yesterday at the Creation Museum. 0.5% of the population of England are evangelical. I didn't want to use the evangelical. Bible-believing Christians. 0.5%. They got away from the Word of God, and they got into other methodologies and other strange things. Look, at everybody's looking for the next great experience, the next great thrill. How many times have you heard, oh, the Holy Spirit is down in Pensacola, let's go down there? Or the Holy Spirit's in Toronto, let's go to the Toronto outpouring and let's go there. Let's go to some place. The mystical, the strange. Everybody's looking for a new Krishna or a new guru. Islam is looking for the Mahdi, which, guess what? It's going to be the Antichrist that they're going to fall all over for. Everyone is clamoring for a new thing. Their chant is, God is doing something new. I can tell you that God is doing something new, but that newness, when you look at Scripture, is this. I have a, a, a plethora of verses that talk about God doing a new thing. And all of them have to do with his a new creation and those who are born again being a new person or a new creation in Christ. All of them. It's not he's had some other methodology, something strange and weird that he's trying to bring in. That is not what the Word of God says. Jeremiah 31, 31, it's a, it's a new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. That new covenant means that in the millennial reign of Christ, all Jews will be saved. That's what that's talking to. That's what that's talking about. Jesus at the Lord's Supper, this a new covenant in my blood. He's doing something new with salvation, with humanity, with the blood of Jesus Christ. Now cleanses us from all sins. In the past, they looked forward to the cross. Now we look back at the cross, and now we have the evidence that Jesus was here and he died on the cross for our sins, that whoever believes that he died in their place can have eternal life and live forever. What a deal. He does it all. He does it all. God is doing a new thing in that, in that vein. In the millennial reign, it says that he will pour out his spirit upon them. Behold, in Revelation 21.5, when he talks about a new heaven and a new earth, this is after the thousand-year millennial reign, which we have very little information on. He's going to redo everything will be brand new. This is going to be an incredible thing. When you talk about a new thing, it's in those two areas. It's not he's doing something strange and weird, and he'll come and watch this show and that sort of thing. That is not what the new thing is. As a matter of fact, Scripture says this. Isaiah 49.6 encourages us, Remember the former things of old. I am God, and there is no other. Remember the old ways. Ecclesiastes 1.9, there is nothing new under the 
son. That's right. And then this one, Jeremiah 6, 19. And this is in the NIV. It's, it's read so well. Hear this. Stand at the crossroads and look for the ancient paths. Stand at the crossroads of your life. When you're making a decision to go to the right or to the left, talking about crossroads, remember the ancient paths, the way of God as opposed to the way that everything else is, wants you to go. It's coming at you in the world. Remember the ancient paths. Peter's teaching how to avoid the corruption of the world and the deceiving. In verse 1, we're going to see these words. We want to be insulated from the false prophets. Believers are to know these truths. You are called to be a bondservant. In verse 1, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that we can rely on this word, that this is the word of God to us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would take the blinders off our eyes, give us soft hearts, and help us to hear from you today the things that you want us to learn. And the things that we learn, may we apply. In Jesus' name, amen. Bond servants, you're called to be bond servants. Verse 1, Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have, who have obtained like precious faith, notice that, that it's precious faith. It's just not common faith, it's precious faith. With us by the righteousness of our God, and Savior Jesus Christ, a bondservant. Peter was an apostle, but he calls himself a bondservant. Peter was an apostle, but he called himself an elder. Peter knew what he really was. He could have, he could have walked on his title as an apostle, but he knows he's a bondservant, a doulos, doulos, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. We are very familiar with this term. Now, how do I know that Christians are supposed to be bondservants? See, this cursory Christianity that we see today is not what it's supposed to be. You know, the half-in, half-out Christian, that is not what Christianity is supposed to be. It is to be bondservant all in Christianity. How do I know? Because Jesus was a bondservant. In 1 Corinthians 7.22, he, he who is free when called is called a bondservant. In 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's servant or bondservant must not quarrel. He must be kind to everyone able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose, oppose him, we must gently instruct and hope that they will come to their senses and avoid the trap of the devil. A bondservant, that's what we are called to. Jesus was a bondservant in Philippians 2.7. He took the form of a bondservant, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. You talk about culture shock? From heaven to here, to be a man, to be a baby? You know why he did it? He did it for us. He did it for us so that we could be with him forever. Jesus came to do the will of his Father. It says in Psalm 47, in the volume of the book it is written of, uh, written of me to do your will, O God. That's what a bondservant's attitude is, to do your will, O God. Paul was called a bondservant. Timothy was called a bondservant. James a bondservant. Peter a bondservant. Jude was called a bondservant. Bond servants of the Lord Jesus. In this era, in this epoch of time that we're living in, of, of self-promotion, that I am the greatest, it's good to remember what a bond servant really is. You know, it's, it, there, there was a song in the 60s, you know, 
It's my thing. I'm going to do my thing. Well, if you're going to do your thing, you're on the wrong path. Get back on the right path. It's my thing. Okay? To call Christians a doulos means this. You are inalienably possessed by God. God owns you. When you said yes to the Lord Jesus, you came into his family. You became his daughter. You became his son. You became his child. You became the bride of Christ who he's going to come back for to take us away. He owns you. You are precious to him. You are precious to him. You belong to him. You're unqualifiedly at the disposal of God. Where he says you go, you go. What he says you do, you do. You don't question him. You don't question him. How does that work within the churches? God is calling me to do something. Every single time, now please hear this, every single time that God calls you to do something, it is going to be stretching you into your area of, now watch this, I'm uncomfortable. I'm, un- I, I, I'm really uncomfortable. Well, you're in the right spot. You're right. You know, God always calls you to stretch you. It's not, this is not babydom forever. It's growth, and growth is stretching. Growth is stretching. Very important to remember that. And then he's called us. He owns, he owns us unquestionably, the obedience of God. Lord, what will you have me to do? And he must be constantly, the doulos must be constantly in the service of God. The Christian can't, I love this, how this is written. The Christian cannot either deliberately or unconsciously compartmentalize life into the time and activities which belong to God. Well, I'll give you Sunday morning, God. I'll give you one hour on Sunday morning, but let me have the rest of my week. Or how about this? How about this? Those Christians who say, I'm a Christian, and I I go to Christmas service, and I go to Easter. No, you cannot compartmentalize this thing. You're all either all in or you're not in. That's how I, I you are. You have to make a choice on this thing. This Sunday one hour holidays. No, we want to be all in. Christians are bond servants of Christ. Peter's audience. Now remember, Peter was a Jew of Jews, and he was prejudiced. He was prejudiced. He didn't care for the Gentiles, but God sent him to the house of Cornelius. Sent him to the house of Cornelius, and he he learned something that God is not a face looker. In, in Acts chapter 10, 34, at the house of Cornelius, Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, no prejudice within the, in the family of God or with Christ. No, that partiality is an acceptor of the face. See, humans are face lookers. You're going to make judgments by the way you look. That's humans. God looks on the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. Didn't he say in Samuel? But God looks on the heart of men. Folks, we're the same. We're the same. We're people, of, people that were created to have a relationship with our God. Don't be a face looker. All are equal at the foot of the cross before our Savior. All of us. Now, just, just a, this is a side note. This next statement is a side note. You can write it in here as a proof text for the deity of Christ. And is the last part of verse 1. To those who have obtained like precious faith, those will be the Gentiles, those will be us, have been grafted in, with us, the Jews, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. This is a deity verse. He is God incarnate, God in flesh. Just put a little star there next to it as a proof text that Jesus is God. It's another 
of many proof texts in Scripture of the deity of Christ. Folks, you are called to be bondservants. Let's walk this out and make our lives obedient to what God has called us to do. Secondly, believers are to know these truths. Verse 2, you are a recipient of God's grace and peace. Now, this is great. This is wonderful. Grace and peace be multiplied to you, not drippled onto you, not trickled into you. But you come into the family of God, it is multiplied onto you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, multiplied unto you. Now, listen, for all who are saved, for everyone who puts their trust in Jesus and says, yes, I believe that you died for my sins. Yes, I receive you as my Savior. His grace, his divine favor is multiplied and abounding, undeserved, unearned favor. God's acceptance that I am his child. I am in his family. God loves me. Why? Because Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Everything. Jesus paid for my life. He died so that I could live. He took my sin on himself on the cross. He took the crushing, the beating of his father in our place. Remember, because of sin, there has to be a death. And all of us have Adam's imputed sin. All of us have to have someone die for us. In the Old Testament, it was an animal. Over and over and over and over. In the New Testament, one time, Jesus suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And his sacrifice is complete. It is complete. And we say yes to Jesus. He forgives our sins. We come into his family. That is great. That is a divine, that is grace, is divine favor multiplied. Fact number two, we have this peace. Now, I want you to hear this, because oftentimes we are talking about the peace of God, meaning the tranquility of God. But if you would, turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. And you're going to, we've been through this before, for you have been with us in the past, but Romans chapter 5, verse 1 has a wonderful text of truth. Therefore, having been justified by faith, remember the word justified means I have Jesus' righteousness credited to me. Even though I'm a dirtbag sinner, I have Jesus' righteousness credited to me. Now God looks at me as he looks at his son. Through the blood of his son, he sees me as clean and pure and righteous. And that's hip, hip, hooray, amen. So, and then we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't peace of tranquility. This means something quite different. John MacArthur writes this, it's not a subjective internal sense of calm and serenity, but an objective reality. God has declared himself to be at war with every human, and the only way to be at peace with God is through Jesus Christ. If you pick it up in verse 9, you'll see more. Chapter 5, verse 9, much more having been justified, oh, declared righteous by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, see, every human born into this world is an enemy of God, separated from God, dead in their trespasses and sins. We were reconciled. If, we, if when we were enemies, adversaries, that's what the word means, enemies, foes. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. See, you, re you see why Jesus is so important. 
You see why it isn't Buddha. You see why it isn't Mohammed or Krishna or any other way. It is the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We've been reconciled. What does that mean? We've been brought back in to right relationship with our God. Adam and Eve were in right relationship until sin broke it, broke that relationship. And now we are brought back into right relationship because of the blood of Jesus Christ has taken our sins away. He's covered us. And now we can have the peace with God. But once you have peace with God, then you have something very precious that is only promised to you as a believer. Only promised to you. Those at peace with God, the war is over. They can live through the chaos of this life with the peace of God that passes all understanding. How can we make it through this travail with the peace of God that passes all understanding? We have access to it, and it's multiplied to you. John 16, 33, great verse. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but oh, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world. This is great news. Jesus overcoming the world. This is not just, just kind of good news. This is great news. He's overcome the world. It's a good segue in the verse 3. Believers know these truths. His divine power enables us to overcome the world. To overcome the world. Verse 3. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. His divine power to overcome the world, to overcome the false teachers. Remember, false teachers always have this great thing, great word that they have for you. This great thing that they're going to do for you. Sounds good to the human, but it's the wrong road. False teachers. All Christians have access to God's divine power. Do you know that? Every one of us that are born again of the Spirit, we have access to God's divine power. But all do not walk in what they have. All do not walk in what they have. Everybody has access, but so many people live on half empty, or three-quarters full, or half full. or We have access to much more than what we can imagine. Despite being immediately Available, all things, immediately available. This is a completed action. It's available, but it's up to us to pursue and receive the all things. It's up to us to receive it, the all things. Here are the words of Alexander McLaren. Now, who's Alexander McLaren? Well, he's a Scottish Bible expositor, and he said this, We have as much of God as we will. Christ puts the keys of the treasury chamber into our hand and bids us take all that we want. If a man is admitted into the bullion vault of a bank and told to help himself and comes out with one cent, whose fault is that? God has generously given to us all things. The vault, the billions and bullion. And it's our fault if we come out with a penny. It's our fault. We have to stand on the promises that he's given us. Stand on the promises he's given us. True knowledge is faith in Jesus Christ that impacts daily living. Believers have all they need spiritually in Christ. We do not need, hear this, we do not need to seek a deeper experience like the Gnostics wanted them to do in 2 Peter. 
You don't have to seek the mystical, seek the signs and wonders. You don't have to seek the strange, the occult, the channeling, the nasty, the special revelation, folks, and that sort of thing. No, we seek after the truth. We seek after the Lord Jesus Christ. He is more than enough. Now, listen to this. What must a believer do to receive all things? Don't you want to know that? What must I do to receive all things? That's a lot of things, all things. Well, a believer must walk in newness of life. That's Romans 6, 4. That we get saved, we are to walk differently, to live differently. We're walking in newness of life. And what that means is to live out your new life for Christ. Truly live it out. This will protect us from the lure of the world and the false teachers. How can we do this? By his divine power that has been given to each one of us. A new you, a new character, a new life is expected. How do I know that? 2 Corinthians 5.17 is still true. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. I'm a new person. The promise is life and godliness. Life and godliness. Now, what does a godly life look like? What does it really look like? Well, it looks like Jesus. Well, what did Jesus look like? Well, Jesus did everything perfect. Are we going to do everything perfect? Not quite, not quite. But our goal is to be obedient to God, be obedient to the moral, his moral commands. We should be living in a way that is pleasing to him, a life that responds when the Holy Spirit says to your heart, this is the way, walk in it. Now, I want to suggest to you something. Every single one of us in this room had this experience. You had a crossroads moment. A crossroads moment. Everything in the world is screaming at us to go down their road. You have the Islam road. You have the Hindu road. You have the my road. Do it my way road. But then there's always the God's way road. The God's way road. Now, the next one that's going to come up is, I think, pretty significant. And it's this guy standing on the crossroads of his life. And he looks like he's pensive. He's thinking. Which way should I go? Should I take Christ's road, or should I go to the left, or should I go to the right? And look, at if you're looking at these roads and you're thinking about which way you should go, a lot of people let their feelings dictate which road they're going to take. And I, 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 feel, I feel like I should go down this road. It's the we're living together road, okay, Without, outside of marriage. It's the adultery road. Everyone else is doing it. It's the porn road, the jealousy road, the vanity road, the greed road, the overeating road, the gossip road, and on and on, whatever road. How about sticking with the Jesus road? That's what we want to hear. We want to hear God speaking to us. And when you see that little guy standing there, think of that verse in Jeremiah 6.16. Stand at the crossroads and look for the ancient paths. Look for what God's Word has said all through Scripture at the ancient paths. Will I walk in newness of life, or will I ignore the Spirit's prompting and do my thing? Take the wrong path. Take the self-fork in the road. And I can suggest to you something. So many people say, I'm going to do my thing. Why is it so significant to you? Why is it such a big deal to you? Because every time someone takes the wrong fork, there's collateral damage. It is never isolated. It's never isolated. Always affects other people. 
You can know that you know that you're on the right fork in the road and take God's road if you're doing things that are congruent with his word. With his word. I'm on the right road. His divine power is giving us all things that we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. Jesus really does make a difference. And finally, in verse 4, believers know these truths. You have precious promises in a new nature. You have precious promises in a new nature. Verse 4, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. This, I like that. Exceedingly. It's an emphasis. Great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers. Now notice there's a qualifier. May be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Epithumia. Upon the mind. Remember, every attack comes upon your mind to take the wrong road. Always upon the mind. That's why we're talking, told in 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 and 4, to take captive every thought. It's always on the mind. That's where Satan's battleground is. On the mind. His precious promises. And the greatest promise that God gives us in his word is salvation to everyone who will believe, who will trust in Jesus. And then there's hundreds of promises that we have to appropriate. We're going to live this thing out. We have to appropriate. Just a couple. In Isaiah 40, it says this. We have strength for the weary. Revelation 22.12, rewards for obedience. And then comforts for the struggling. Don't we want that? We all have a little of that going on. Hope for the dying. That's a great hope in the resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. And then you have this promise in Hebrews 13.5. And I don't know if you remember this, but it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that never is five times in the Greek. I will never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you. Oh, our God is faithful. He will always stick with us. And he says in the Great Commission, Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. That's a promise to you. Another promise is that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will have power to walk this thing out. You will have power to carry out the mission that God has given to you. You must walk in that. True partakers of the divine nature escape the false teacher's bullets. And they're always aimed at your mind to have you go down the wrong path. That's what they're always aimed at. Now, there's a question that has to, be, has to come to the forefront here. Does a new nature mean I will be perfect here? I'm glad you said that because there's a lot of folks, or at least some folks, that believe in sinless perfection on this side that I don't sin anymore. Well, you just lied. Okay? That's, <laughs> you're, you're still in it. Okay? We're, am I always going to be victorious? And the answer, of course, is no. No. However, listen to this. However, you must be in the battle. You must be in the battle. The truth is this. It's a daily battle. Sometimes it's a moment-to-moment battle. If you're in an addiction, it's moment-to-moment, second-to-second, okay? The battle is moment-to-moment, and you must say yes to the Holy Spirit and no to my flesh urges. Remember, your flesh has urges, and people always want to scratch that urge. And the stronger I become, the stronger I become when I say yes to the Holy Spirit and no to my flesh. I am demonstrating that I am a partaker of the divine nature. 
when I walk in the Spirit, when I walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh, I'm living in my new nature. That's a great statement. And when I walk in the flesh, when I do the things of the flesh, I'm walking in my old nature. And by the way, when you take that flesh road to the right or to the left, it always, always, always results in misery. Always. Always. That little carrot that's dangled out there that's, that's so tasty and so wonderful and so great will end up poisoning and hurting you. Always. Galatians 5, 16 through 25 talks about walk in the Spirit, you do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then it goes on to say what the lust of the flesh is, and it lists a litany of things. Adultery, fornication, all this awful stuff, which I don't have time to read. And then it says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. A very scary verse. A very scary verse. If you're carrying, if you're walking in a way that is persistently, consistently rationalized, that I'm doing this and I'm rationalizing it somehow, that you have to really seek, am I really in this thing? Now, I'm not saying that Christians don't have struggles, and you might have failures, and you might have big failures, and that sort of thing. But be in the battle. Confess your sins. Get back on the right track. But notice the difference between the flesh and the spirit. The spirit of God, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Self-control. I don't have to go down that urge road that wants to take me off to the left or to the right. I don't have to go down it. And remember, the fruit of the Spirit is not something that you strain to do. I'm not going to be better and better and better so I can bear some fruit and all of a sudden maybe an apple will pop out or something. And it's not what it is. It's abiding in Christ. And a natural outflow of abiding in Christ is fruit. It's natural. It just starts to come out of you. Before you know it, you're driving on the freeway and you're not so mad at everybody on the freeway. Or somebody ticks you off at work, you're not so mad at the people at work. That sort of thing. It's the fruit of the Spirit. A new you is expected. And listen to this statement. I, this is a great statement. Believers' lives are evidence of, not the basis of, their true conversion. No fruit, no root. I thought that was kind of an interesting statement that somebody made. I didn't make this up. This came from somebody. So finally, in closing, believers know these truths. And I just want you to do some introspection, some self-examination for just a second to protect yourself from the false teachers or the lies that are coming at you 24-7. Am I a bondservant of Christ? Is my will consumed with the Master's will? I mean, it's just a test question. You just do your own introspection. Am I a recipient of God's grace and peace? Am I really saved? Am I really born again? Am I living in his divine power? Am I spirit-filled or am I dominated by my flesh? You have to answer that question. So do I. Am I experiencing the new nature or is it the same old thing? Are strongholds tumbling? Are strongholds still there? Are people actually seeing the change? Are they actually seeing a new you and saying, hey, there's something different about you? What happened to you? Then are you appropriating all that God has for you? And remember, his divine power has given to you all things, and you must appropriate 
God's power. That'd be just a picture of a wave here. And it's just to demonstrate power. We must appropriate God's power. We must appropriate the promises that he has for us and walk in it. He's given us precious promises. And there are multiple, many promises. We are partakers of the divine nature. That's been given to you. As you walk this world as a believer, as an overcomer, as a bondservant of Jesus, there's a few things I'd like to leave you with. Please know this. First of all, know who you are. There's a lot of chaos in the world. There's a lot of stuff that comes into our lives. There's a lot of discomfort that comes our way. Know who you are. You are a child of God, and you are not forgotten. Your God knows right where you are. He is there, and he will never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you. You are unique, you are one of a kind, and you are precious in his sight. Know who you are in Christ. Secondly, accept who you are. You don't have to be somebody else. When I was growing up, I wanted to be Mickey Mantle. Well, that's a joke. I couldn't, you know, I wasn't going to be Mickey Mantle, but I thought I was. Thought I tried to run like Mickey Mantle, bat like Mickey Mantle, catch like Mickey Mantle. Couldn't do any of those things, but I thought I did in my mind. You know, accept who you are. You don't have to be like somebody else. You're good enough in God's sight. He loves you. He loves you. Live out his joy in your life. And finally, be who you are. Not a phony, not a mask wearer, not somebody that you think people want you to be. Be who you are. And as you travel the road of life, for all of us, laugh more. We're going to go through this one time. One time, laugh more, enjoy life more, relish the journey, and know that you know that you know that God is with you. He is with us. Finally, believers are to know these truths. And if you do, if you walk life this way, it will be a much more enjoyable life. Know these truths. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We thank you for Peter, a bondservant, apostle bondservant of the Lord Jesus that teaches us that we can have all things, all things, all promises. We know that everything in Scripture, everything written here, some of it's written to the disciples, some of it's written to Old Testament prophets, but there's a whole lot that's written for us today that are believers. May we walk in the promises that you've given us. May we say no more to the flesh and yes to the Spirit. May we walk in the power that you've given us. You've given us the ability to overcome these urges. We don't have to respond to our urges, but we can walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, which is much more powerful than any urge that we may have. May we appropriate these things that you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.